Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers. In the 24th episode, I spoke with Jules Erhardt, who is the founder of Factory. So the Factory is a really interesting example of a creative capital studio, which is trying to revolutionize how creatives get paid. So Jules was previously an owner at Us2, a pretty famous studio which actually pioneered the whole digital product studio uh, trend. So Jules left Us2 a couple of years ago to start experimenting with his new business models and revenue models in the creative industry. So after writing two seminal pieces uh, called State of the Digital Nation 2020 and 2018, he decided to put it in practice and to create an example of that through Factory. So in this episode, we spoke about this example of Factory and uh, discussed if the design agency model is doomed. We talked about uh, basically how creators should get paid and will hopefully get paid in the future and also how the lack of economic literacy, so the lack of knowledge about business, um, is blocking us as a community from achieving our full potential. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. If you want to learn more about business, um, you can visit my website, beyondusers.com, and there you can take a five-day email course, which I put together. It's called Mini MBA for Designers. And in these emails, I present five business concepts that are relevant for designers and that I've also used in my design process. So that's available on beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Jules. First of all, Jules, thanks for taking the time. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure. The thing I want us to kick off with is how did you find yourself in the design and creative world at all? Because you yourself like, uh, are also not coming, are not like typical designer coming into this space, right? That's correct. Yeah, I've had a I've had a pretty uh, interesting journey to end up where I am today. Um, I, I definitely was a kind of self taught designer and engineer, but when I say that, I'm, this isn't within the realms of being a webmaster, which definitely carbon dates my my creative career. So um, it was you know late late nineties, early noughties, and uh, I just was self taught um, and building websites for for people um, before there was a kind of industry. So I think that established my interest and passion for technology and design in later years you know my focus has really pretty quickly transformed into the commercial side of creativity or the business of design but having stepped into that role it comes with a deep passion uh, and interest in in creativity and design and technology um so i think you know like a lot of people um it was a field I fell into out of passion and I didn't have a formal training. I definitely didn't have a, an education in, and I did, I did uh, East Asian studies of Chinese, Japanese and Korean history and politics at university. So it's a bit of a strange journey, but that's how I got there. I found your work very, very interesting because it looks at the whole industry from a very macro level. So I think it would be interesting that we kick off with you laying out maybe on a macro level, what, how, how has this creative industry if we can call it that how has it evolved and where are we now in this journey um yeah happily happily share that because that's my obsession really and to build on your previous question you know going from 
um, going from helping people do their websites and being kind of basically web marketing when web was 1.0, I, I um, had a web agency, um, stepped out of the industry, nearly borrowed a desk at uh, a friend's studio called Us2 um, nearly a decade ago now and um, was going to leave digital, so to speak, but fell in love with this field of user interface, which I, UI design, which I didn't know existed. And um, that was in the era of mobile. I then, uh, within a certain amount of time, became a partner and owner, owner in us too, and I was responsible for helping us kind of grow commercially. So um, that kind of sets the scene of how I've observed the industry because my journey at us too, um, over a period of eight to nine years, um, and which included uh, growing us in London and then coming setting up in the US, has, has given me a lot of exposure to um, the industry and, and, you know, from, from top to bottom and, uh, lots of privilege of access, especially since I left us to, to go and meet with people, all the stakeholders in our industry individuals, agencies, clients, investors, and VCs. So that's the journey I've been on. Um, and so when I do write or talk about the industry, it's just from firsthand experience of, of doing things and it's the privilege of access I have. So I've definitely seen uh, a lot of change in the industry. Obviously, if I told you as a webmaster, um, that that's <laughs> that was a previous era. Um, yeah. And uh, then, you know, being in the consultancy space with us too, and now stepping closer to the world of startups and venture, um, I've seen I've seen a lot of change. So, I've, you know, and that's what I've written about in, in these pieces called State of the Digital Nation, which is really about how the industry is changing, what we can do as, as studios or agencies, and then what we can do as individuals. So, um that's kind of that kind of frames my my journey, um, but yeah, there there are a lot of big themes um, affecting the creative industry. Maybe one point where we can zoom in and then uh, go from there is your decision to leave us too and to uh, create something called Creative Capital Studio. So let's maybe zoom into this. Like, why did you decide to leave us too? So my my journey I came to an end after I think eight or nine years. Um, I, le- I left us to, uh, and, and really the, the consultancy industry with, with a sense of um, dissatisfaction at, at, at the model through which creativity is transacted. You know, I had a fantastic journey at us too, got, got to literally travel the world and work with um, some of the most talented people in the industry and, and, and different clients. Um, but I, stepped out and, and was privileged enough to take uh, a period of time out of, of the industry. I stepped out of it for about uh, a year. And the thing that really bugged me was that I felt the model was fundamentally broken, that being paid for time um, was kind of a, an island prison that we trapped ourselves on a long time ago and um, really stood us as creatives um, on the back foot. And, and from there, everything that we try and do, every model we try and develop it still dials back to being paid for time and when you're being paid for time um it kind of homogenizes what we do as creatives um it leads to commoditization uh and you know for kind of false comparison from procurement departments that they're buying time rather than expertise so for me that's the core ill of the industry um i personally had a journey where i had the option again the privilege of of leaving the industry and you know i i Reflected a little bit on what I wanted to do next, short of opening a bakery, which is my other passion is bread. Um, um, and actually decided, you know, whatever I did, I didn't want to leave my tribe. The question of what's my tribe 
came up for me again and again. And I said, well, look, it is creative people. It's designers, it's engineers, it's researchers, it, it's, it's, it's business people who, who create business models. And so that was my first vow. Okay, well, I'm going to stay with my tribe. But if I'm going to do that, then I also will vow that I will, won't be paid for my time again. I'll be paid for my mind. So be, be paid for your mind, not your time. Uh, and I also said I would be done with the agency model, which for me is a model um, which can still work, but it, it's definitely a model of fixed returns where the, it's a linear line, you know, it's linear, um, the amount of revenue you can generate and is linearly you know, attached to the effort you put in. Um, there's no passive revenue. Um, and I think background is I know from my time at us too, and in my previous company, we'd helped a lot of companies develop platforms which literally generated billions of dollars. And that always really sat with me, despite being well paid, it still felt there's something wrong here. I don't want to be sitting on my rocking chair on my porch whenever I retire, which would probably be what, 18, 90 years old by the time by the time that happens, it, it, that thinking, oh, what a fantastic career in life definitely made a lot of people very wealthy. Um, that always <laughs> sat with me. That always really sat with me. So, um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, the... the the, con- the, the thoughts I had about wanting to come back to industry and how and why led to this path of exploring alternate ways of doing things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, so it's interesting you, you talk about this model of being paid for time because on one side, it's very safe. You know, like it's easy to start with it and it, it, it kind of generates revenue right away. Um, but on the other side, it doesn't give you this leverage, right? You, you can't really grow exponentially and stuff. So I think it would be interesting to hear also from your perspective, um, why is this model not great? Like what have you seen in the last, with the last 10 years? Why is it fundamentally broken? Like how, how else should we, what, what, what kind of new revenue model should we strive for or agencies? Yeah, I think, I think. During during my time with us too, we were very progressive um, in that I definitely think if you have a studio on your paid-for-time consultancy business, you need to offer a premium product that commands a premium price. So premium work charged at a premium, um, number one. Once you've done that, you still realize you hit these limits. And, and um, you, what, what, what might have been 20, 30, 40% margins back in the day, um, as you scale and grow from, you know, 20 people to 50 to hundred to 200, your margins actually decrease. So you're actually almost making the same level of profit, um, as you were at half the size with three times the amount of stress. Um, there's something that didn't make sense for that, um, for me. Um, secondly, I think if you look at this, the state of the industry, margins are definitely decreasing. If you think, talk to Soda, I think a couple of years ago, the average agency margin was 9%. And then the most recent report, I think they said it was 8%. Um, now that's of course the median or the average. Um, but it's definitely the case that, that margins are declining. And there are lots of factors in, in that, in the agency space. And my take is that it's somewhat due to a collapse in trust between the buyers and sellers of creativity or agencies and clients. And um, due to that work, and teams be increasingly being built in house, as you can see, like big, big brands like P and G and others are, are drastically slashing their agency rosters, and and they're drastically slashing their external vendor budget um, budgets. So you've got the same amount of work with the same amount of uh, sorry, reduced amount of work with the same amount of agencies, which leads to people mm. competing on price and hitting this kind of downward spiral. I, I do really think it is a lot of the responsibility is on us uh, in the creative industry. One in regards to our general commercial commercial literacy, but two, 
the collapse in trust is definitely something we need to take responsibility for. And there's a really, there was a really sobering truth that I, I came to on my time when I stepped out, um, which was this, that I don't believe that we can honestly say we've delivered value consistently. Um, and what I, you know, for me, I suspect actually, I'm pretty positive that no one from McKinsey or IDEO, myself and my previous company, um, um, or, or, or any of the top branding consultancies would use their own company if it was their own money. And that's pretty sobering. You know, if you wouldn't use your own company's services, if it was your money or if you'd inherited $2 million and you could finally build the startup of your dreams, what does that say about our industry? Um, now you could argue we're, we're trying to adapt to the, um, inefficiencies of working with large clients and, and, uh, all the friction that's involved. And it does take, you know, $3 million to redesign MasterCard logo, um, or whatever the cost was. My gut is none of those people would use their own agencies and that's pretty sobering. And I think that's, that's also why we have bare responsibility for this collapse in trust between agencies and clients. So there's a, there's a lot of big stuff going on, but it's leading to, you know, price commoditization and margins being, um, uh, declining. Yeah. And probably the ones who struggle the most are the small agencies. And I actually have a few friends who are running, um, let's say small or medium sized agencies and when i talk to them i see exactly this problem right of mm. having more and more competition also from uh cheaper economies from agencies that are based there so it's it's getting tougher and tougher so my question for you would be like what is the what is your recommendation or suggestion for people who are either running these agencies or working in them like what can they do to get out of this trap yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to just give proclamations of doom here, but I, I, I would say that having had an agency or a couple in my time, um, it's a really privileged journey. It, 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 it's, it's boot camp. You, you'll get to work with an insane amount of different clients and and go on lots of different adventures and learn a lot in that time. I still think it's feasible to have a, a very successful and profitable studio, just running, you know, paid for time consultancy. Um, um, it's just that let's say the top 30% of the industry used to, we used to do very well. Now it's, I think the top 15 to 10%, you have to be very good, um, in order to survive and prosper in this kind of new industry scenario. Now, definitely if you're not offering a good service or a good product and you're at the bottom 20%, you're bottom 30, 40, you're going to get destroyed in the coming years. So number one is do great work. <laughs> um, that's absolutely normal. If you're, if you're doing average work, then you can kind of forget about it. You're going to get sucked into the, the vortex. So do fantastic work. Um, offer a premium product, um, offer it at a premium, don't compete on price. Um, and of course, then you've got to look at what services you're offering. You know, if, if it's something that's already heavy, heavily commoditized, let's say at one end of the scale banner design, then that's not really a business worth building on. Um, I would say though, if you talk about big and small agencies, I know a number of very large agencies and I'm based here in New York are not having fun at the moment and they haven't had fun for the last few years. And what I've actually seen as a, an emerging trend is, uh, big brands being willing to engage smaller shops and even teams of assembled uh, freelancers uh, for work. And that, that's, that's yeah, I know that pattern is cyclical, but definitely there's an appetite now for big brands to engage smaller shops where they might want the comfort of a, a huge or an RGA in New York. They're actually quite happy to go with a 20-person shop or a 10-person shop. Um, and so that's that's what I've seen as, you know, emerge, the pendulum swing back that way. So what I would say is it's 
feasible to have have a successful you know agency business don't compete on price don't have a poor product um and uh i think that would be my key advice it, it, it's possible it's just harder um but it's also a tremendously rewarding journey to go on the, the full cycle of building uh, an agency mm. In in your um, State of the Digital Nation from 2016, you talked about having kind of the three pillars, so almost like three revenue streams for, for an agency. One being yep. the agency work, one digital products, and the third one being the ventures. How are you looking back at this model? Is this still still relevant? Well, just to kind of set the scene a little bit. So I, I think I wrote, I wrote State of the Digital Nation 2016. Um for myself kind of to capture all my thoughts and where the industry was going. And I think I had pages and pages of notes and, and, um, and post-it notes and things like that. So basically what I was doing was talking about very much about us two's journey that, that, you know, a, the principles of us working in digital product design rather than in kind of, uh, in, interactive marketing or, you know, di general digital, um, was one key differentiator. So the kind of work you do, um, if you do digital product work, you're more likely to work with companies that are focused on digital product and not work with marketing departments. Um, so that's, that was one kind of defensible barrier. So, so the idea of state of origination was to talk about our two's journey and how we charted our course. So f for me, it's key do what kind of work you're doing, that it can be charged a premium, that it's specialist. And I always come back to this ethos. And this is again, a hopeful message for, For smaller shops is there are um, more good projects than there are good teams. So if you have a good team or a great team, you're going to be in a world of perfect information. Of course, you're going to get work. Um, so you need to have very good product teams in this particular case. You need to charge a premium and have a premium product. I think diversifying the revenue stream um, was key. Coming back to this epiphany I had that I didn't want to just have helped large corporations make a lot of money. Um, um, it's really about how do we, how do we begin to work, make money passively, so to speak. So us to, you know, began to extend its model from doing straight up consultancy work into developing its own products and services that came out of a passion for building our own stuff. And I say, our it's past tense. Um, and, and us to built a number of products in that time and it, you know, which really were the, um, the, all, all the pathway to building monument value, which, which helped change us to fortunes because it, it you know generated non significant amounts of money for a game i think you know in the region of 15 million per game between you know uh, for game for the first money value one and money value two and all that information is open and public um, that fundamentally changed the model because you could then begin to make or other investments so you've got your consultancy business which has to be profitable and at a premium you're beginning to create your own products and services which generate money while you're sleeping um, and third the third arm of, of that was the venture part that um, you know, there's a little bit of a principle we'll get to later around what creative capital is. Um, but the point there is that, um, that creatives should also be able to share in the wealth that their work creates. Um, and that really is what the venture part is about. Um, so, so really those three principles I do, do believe in. Um, I know big successful shops in New York are, you know, are making those plays. They're doing consultancy work, but they're also doing venture work and sometimes building their own products. I also know the second two, building your own stuff and doing work on a risk basis, a venture basis is a privilege. It's, it's something you can only do off the back of having, you know, um, some good profits and some money in the bank. Because of course, if you don't, can't pay electricity in two months or wages next month, then you're not going to be doing this risk-based work. 
so yeah, I, I completely subscribe to them. It, it's a journey to get to the point of doing that, uh, to be able to afford it. Some of the work I'm doing is actually is 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 really about how we can create a marketplace for for, for companies not to be able to compromise because I think it's very difficult to do uh, to run a uh, you know a P and L for a paid for time consultancy business, which usually, if you're lucky, gives you like a three month visibility. Uh, or th- you know, if you're lucky, beyond three to four months visibility on how much money you're going to be making um, um, with something that's entirely risk based, which might or might not work. Let's say it's a game, or might deliver a, a return in five to ten years. So they're fundamentally incompatible, and I think that's why not that many people can engage in both models at the same time. Does that make sense? It does, and that would be my next question: is like if I am barely surviving, quote unquote, basically, you know. If I have only money for the next three months, how can I even think about creating a product? Well, I, I, I don't think you can. Uh, you know, you're either going to have to get that funded, that initiative. But really, uh-huh. your job, your job, I think, is to run a healthy business as a baseline, and and the additional opportunities come off the top of that. Currently, um, so yeah. It, I, again, I, 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 one of the things I came away with, despite you know us two's you know, success in, in, in running these, the three, three pillars, which was, you know, paid for time consultancy, building your own products and doing venture-based work, uh, was that it actually is really, really hard to reconcile those models. Uh, and that set me on this path, you know, when I said I was going to leave the agency model is like, is there a way of, of doing that? And that landed me on this kind of creative capital model. Yeah. Could you, maybe before we go to creative capital studio, I just have one more question, which is burning inside me. It's just maybe you have a perspective on this. Like, how important is the location? <laughs> you know, like basically where you're located as an agency for the prices that you can achieve. Because it feels yeah. to me like um, you talked about having a premium price before. But yeah. what if I'm not based in one of the hotspots? If I'm not in SF, you know, I'm not in uh, New York, if I'm not in Berlin or whatever, like, how can I still achieve? that premium prices to actually not play the commodity game anymore, but to actually get discussion of few months, uh, uh, money for a few months that I can start playing with ventures and with products, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I, I think it comes a little bit back to there are more good projects and there are good teams. Um, so if, if you are good enough and offer a service that allows someone to build a product, for example, I think geography um, becomes slightly less important. If you're doing you know, web banners, then of course, yeah, you're, you're, A, you're kind of screwed if you're building business on that, but B, um, it, geography comes into it a lot, more, uh, a lot more. I think, look, obviously, well, you know, you can charge more if you're based in the US. It's a bigger market. The budgets are bigger. Clients are just used to paying more. Um, and certainly when we came to the US, we just doubled our prices instead of doing a kind of exchange rate conversion, but also your costs of business in the US are higher. Um, you know, I, I always advise people that the U.S. is a market that responds to ambition um, and and you should really lean into it if you're talking about the U.S. I, I think unless you have some kind of presence here, it's harder for you to command something that's closer to local rates. If you're just popping in on a plane every now and then, it's harder to command that. And of course, mm. you know, as a, as a client, I'd be also be wondering what, you know, what the tax is, you know, what's the inefficiency I'm building in by not having these teams locally accessible. Um so I think geography does come into it. Um, and you, I, I think obviously there is still a bit of a mindset that anything overseas is, is outsourcing or offshoring or in, whereas I think, I think, you know, I think 
that the industry is slowly coming around to the notion of distributed teams and supporting them. Um, and I think there'll be a greater acceptance of, of international companies who have very good systems of delivery, um, but there'll be greater acceptance. I, th- I think the, the, the brand of offshoring, which, uh, which you know, I've seen not work <laughs> in quite big ways, um, was definitely affected by um, yeah, it, its track record. But there's a lot more technology, there's a lot more companies who are well-versed in distributed teams that I think is defensible if you came out to want to work with a U.S. client. And I think U.S. clients, um, or even you know, British clients who would look towards solutions in Europe are more open-minded towards it. So I think there's a shift heading that way. Mm. And probably having a product uh, that you sell makes you more defendable in that way because companies do not, or end consumers do not look exactly where you're located. Whereas when you're an agency selling to a big company, they are kind of aware of that, right? Yeah, 100%. I, look, I mean, I think there's a huge degree of fortune attached to kind of my journey and, and, and to us too's journey. You never know if a game's going to work. Um, but you know, Monument Valley became what I used to call the gateway drug to us too. Um, some of the battle was when you'd meet people and that's the only thing they knew about us too. And then you explained, yes, you do user interface design and product for cars and, and, you know, big trading systems and things like that. So having a product can serve multiple purposes, even if you do it for free, um, it's good marketing. It mm. just generates a discussion. It shows actually that you're willing to put your money where your mouth is. You're investing your own money and your capabilities. So I think this, that was always some very good signaling when I was speaking with potential clients, um, that you know, if 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 you're building your own stuff, then there's a certain discipline and rigor you you attach to that and develop and um, and a confidence in your own abilities. Got it. Okay. So you mentioned a few times the Creative Capital and Creative Capital Studio. Can you talk about both terms? What do they mean? And then we can go into what you're working on right now. Yeah, happy to. Um, so. Just to dial back a little bit, so 2016 State of the Digital Nation, which, which is basically a big industry overview, what it means to be an agency in these kind of changing waters um, and how do you navigate your path? And, you know, we kind of spoke about the US2 journey, which is going from consultancy, developing into own product and venture. The, the interesting thing that State of the Nation 2018, which I, I call 2020 because um, it's future stuff, was was actually having left us to, it was it was reflections on what these industry changes, which were being exacerbated now, this kind of, A, the, the consolidation, the creative industry, a lot of agencies getting brought, not many independents left, the breakdown in trust, certainly the collapse uh, in in the advertising industry, which has only just begun. Um, all of those things were reflections on what that meant for me as an individual. So again, I was writing in 2018 about, okay, with all this stuff going on, with the agency model being kind of tested and and then then what does that mean for me as an individual? And that was what the, the, the kind of second state of the nation was about. And I kind of set out the framework for how I approach what I was doing next. Um, so, so really it all pointed for me, especially if you're talking about being paid for your mind and not for your time towards the kind of venture space. So what I began to do was explore um, the journey or the journeys that lots of prominent creators had made in the world of venture. Um, and really for me, it ended up on seeing really that to a great extent, creatives are seen as an accessory to the venture space, certainly to the venture capital model. And we didn't have a model that we could own on our terms. Um, and that really led me to exploring a model, the creative capital model, uh, which, which was about us as a creative class beginning to define, redefine the terms of business on our terms. 
Um, and that was following a study of you know many creators who travel through the world of venture. Daniel Berker at um, Google Ventures and Irene Au at Cosler Ventures and John Mader went you know went to Kleiner Perkins is now Automatic. So I think a lot of a lot of these people I've had the privilege of engaging with were very generous with their time and I, I be, was able to do a lot of study to to really land on um, land on what 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 I call creative capital and to kind of explain creative capital. Um, I would say, preface this, I didn't invent the notion of equity for services, which is kind of backtracks into. It's actually creative capital is an effort um, to bring the creative industry around a model. Um, and that model is us exchanging our creative expertise in return uh, for uh, some of the upside. So there's a very simple principle, which I say, creatives should also be able to share in the wealth that is created from their work. And that really underpins the creative capital model. And it really recognizes that that we as creatives across the kind of full spectrum, um, when our, our expertise properly applied generates business value. Um, and if it does do that, and we know it does do that, we can consider it an asset. Uh, and it's an asset that we can directly barter for some of the upside, be it in the form of equity or a profit share, but it's also an asset that someone could invest in because they can invest in us and we can go out and create and capture value. So um, a simple example would be... Um, you know, and uh, Acme Inc. So, Example Corp employs Acme Inc., which is a digital consultancy, to build a digital product. In return for them building that product and taking it to market, um, Acme Inc. Um, it receives you know five percent of equity in that company. So, what we've done there is that the creative studio or shop has delivered um, its expertise. Um, usually, receives some equity and cash, but now their incentives are fully aligned. The success of that company. Um, is tied uh, to the success of the product. And, and should there be a significant outcome or return, then actually everyone benefits. So there's a really fundamental thing about creative capital. It's, it's really about the alignment of incentives. Yeah, that's, that's a huge one. Yeah. Um, I think two things we have to clarify is how is creative capital different from maybe a startup studio? Yep. And then secondly, how is it different from a venture capital firm? Because it sits somewhere in between, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a difference between the creative capital model and the creative capital studio. So, you know, the creative capital model is something that has been happening like for, for decades. Um, creative shops have been doing work in return for equity. And there's lots of interesting examples. Um, uh, Smart Design did a lot of OXO's work. And I think they used to get a 3% royalty on every OXO product sold, or certainly the ones they designed. Yves Bahar at Fuse Project, um, you know, they, they worked on August and a number of other projects where they received equity. Um, IDEO uh, helped launch launch PillPack, um, and you know if you, if you look at more contemporary examples uh, here in the US, there's some branding consultancies, Gin Lane um, uh, and Red Antler. Red Antler, for example, they did Casper's branding, um, and Partners in Spade did Harry's branding, which you know are, more, are recognized startups, and they received equity in that. And now those startups are turning into you know be worth hundreds and millions, and if not if not billions. So there are lots of examples of creative shops. Um, doing work in return for equity. And they have been doing that for many years. Um, and we just haven't locked arms as an industry to begin to normalize this model. Um, it's all done in the background. Us too, we helped launch a few startups. We, we helped launch Dice, which is a mobile ticketing startup. I say we, I've still got to get used to my past tenses, but us too helped help launch that. Um, and But no one really talks openly and in detail about these, what we call alternative revenue models. And the effort around the creative capital model is actually 
for us all as an industry and as a creative sector to begin to call it something to begin to establish conventions, to begin to share information, have a consciousness that together we're stronger. Uh, and in doing so, begin to normalize it in the same way that um, when you're a startup and you want to tap into venture capital, you pretty much know what the rules are and who the players are and what the standard terms are. And we haven't yet done that. And the, the goal with creative capital is for us as an industry to do the same so that in a number of years, anyone wanting to tap into our creative expertise on that basis, understands what the creative capital model is and what the conventions are. Um, so that's that's really the effort, and you know I see it going through a series of phases. Um, but you know it's something that's been happening. It's equity for services, but I think we really need to step up and own it as a as a creative class and to establish the terms. And I think in doing so, everyone will benefit from it, not just the kind of buyers of creativity, but also us as a creative community. So I think uh, you know an open source mentality is going to be really key to this being a success and, and us beginning to, you know, add verbiage to it, verbiage to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Just, just to try to recap you to see if I understand it correctly. So creative capital is kind of the answer to the problem that we laid out previously, right? The problem being selling your time, yep. which is not aligned with the clients because basically your kind of incentive is to work as long as possible, even though you could have shipped that product faster, right? Because you're paid for your time. Yep. If we would be paid for the, impact that we actually are creating as creatives then uh we could earn much more but then we have to align the incentives change the revenue model by not getting paid by time but getting paid by the impact and this is creative capital is basically a way for us to do exactly this by sharing the risk but also the rewards with clients is that yes. I, I, I would I would say that I wouldn't say it's the solution. It's a new path. There was a path that yeah. we're um, It's definitely you know a look. I'd, I'd stress, especially if you're working with startups, it's very high risk. So as an asset class, it's a high risk exactly. investment. So I, I don't want to sell this as the the solution. It's a solution. I think it, it does a few other things though. It decouples the value of creative expertise from the time it takes to deliver it, which which you just alluded to now. Um, and that's, that's really important as well. So I think this work, uh, where, where we can begin to realign the economy a bit around aligned interest will, will do a lot right down the chain, but you're quite right. It, it, it's in essence that, and what I would say in my, um, my journey is you know, there are some conventions, you know, don't just take equity, take equity and cash. And I think, you know, an interesting mindset, which my friend Thomas Patterson, who used to be at Square, um, um, kind of shared with me is that the cash component of an, any kind of blended deal for equity and cash, the cash is kind of for the execution component. The equity is really for the strategic insight that you're bringing because that's, that's the stuff of most value. Um, so yeah, so it, 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 it being blended is important. Now, yes, it is different to a startup studio uh, or a VC firm. If you talk about the purest form of the model, um, because if a creative capital studio, which is a studio fully built on the principles of only doing risk-based work, you know, taking pieces of equity or, or revenue share um, is a different model to what a startup studio is. So let's say that I have five creative friends and we want to start a creative capital studio. Yep. The first thing that comes to my mind is how are we going to survive for the next seven years, which is, let's say, the usual time it takes a successful startup to IPO or to, to have an exit. Yep. So how do I even begin? You know, how do I pay the bills for, for us to survive for the next seven years? 
Good question. I, I think it goes hand in hand with, and that's the way we're building factory as well. It's, it's, you do a blend, you take, you take, you know, you take some equity and you take some cash. And that's the way I guess you call it in the U S bootstrapping and until the point, <laughs> until the point you have enough reserves to do pure cash deals. And I think that's really a reflection of the current state of the industry or the creative capital model. And to kind of, to so that's, that's how you do it now, short of having the model fully funded, which is what I'm working towards. Um, that's the next step. But I think we, we need to do a lot more work as an industry uh, to begin to ha- make this an attractive investment for seasoned investors. Um, so I'd, I'd love to outline, you know, the kind of five phases of where I think we are, uh, we have been, where we are and where it could go to. Mm. Before you go there, just one question. Yeah. Uh, just to be clear on this difference between the fully funded model and the cash uh, and equity split. Somehow. Yes. So when you talk about the fully funded model, this means basically that you would get, uh, let's say, maybe VC fund or a few of them to invest, for example, a few million dollars that would finance this studio for the next five years. And then you would split all the equity that you get from the startups. Is that correct? That, that's correct. You know, the, the way you know, my journey of the last couple of years since, you know, since even us too is really studying the VC model, you know, being closer to startups and, and how capital is exercised. So I think there's a lot to learn from the VC model. I, I believe that the pure form creative capital studio, which, which kind of factory is, um, is, is the purest form of expression of this model. It's not the compromise where well, we need to do some pure consultancy work and then we need to do some uh, risk-based work it's actually the purest expression of the model um mm. but how does the hybrid then work like where does the cash come from is it that the startups yeah. uh that the creative capital studio work uh, works with do they pay so does the startup pay or does the money come from somewhere else the, the, the model we need to work towards in industry is is that that creative capital is recognized as an asset class and we we as we as initially as studios can attract investment to to do that work and as you said split the split the carry split the reward um from from the outcome mm-hmm. so that that's the model we need to work towards it's perfectly feasible in the interim to do deals where you're going to get a certain amount of equity and a certain amount of cash. And that lets you proceed. It lets you begin to build a portfolio of equity um, and it lets you learn, um, but it also lets you generate cash. So you, so you, you can, um, you can survive, so to speak. What I really think we need to work towards, and that's where it comes to these phases is, is it being normalized, it being recognized as a way for people to invest. Um, now there's some really interesting things when you talk about, you know, the funding and going back to how the VC model works is that they go in fund cycles. I believe the creative capital studio model should be funded in, you know, you fund two years of operations and that's that period of time is a fund. And in that period of time, the companies you go out and work with, uh, and take equity and that they go, that equity goes into the portfolio for that fund. So I really see the necessity is to just fund the studio in in two year cycles, so to speak, and and mm. what that allows you to do, and what's great about the way VC funds are structured is, at the end of those two years, um, you can you know, you'll have raised money for the next two years, uh, but you can have people on board, off board, um, uh, the studio. But you know, if even if someone left who'd been part of the previous fund, they've both received a salary, but also will will still have carry a percentage of the portfolio that that's been built over those two years. So. In one of my frustrations around the agency model is it would be quite possible to work somewhere for eight years, which was, you know, I had a privileged outcome 
who works there for eight years and leave and kind of be penalized for leaving because there were no incentive structures for other than people who are owners to truly um, truly contribute. There's no outcome. And I think the creative capital model well, where there is a portfolio of equity uh, being being collected, that's a great incentive for people um, to, to, to align internally the incentives across the whole across the whole studio. And it's a great way for people being being able to leave after one fund or two funds, but not be penalized because they've actually been people who've contributed to the the wealth being collected uh, or the assets being collected in that time. So I think funding it over two year cycles is, is more realistic. It allows you to change direction, it allows you to kind of bring in new investors, it allows you to onboard new people and offboard people as well. So I think sh- th- thinking in shorter term cycles is is valid. And the great thing is most people who run a studio and can run can you know. It run run it on rails you know operational costs if there's anything who's run an agency knows is how to run a kind of uh, um you know human space business <laughs> yeah but this is really interesting i didn't even think about the benefits from the talent perspective like these two two year windows that sounds like a huge benefit also for attracting talent yeah look i again i, I had a lot of reflections on the agency model and and they're covered a little bit in the in the um, state of the state of the digital nation pieces. A lot of other things irked me that that you could work somewhere for the bulk of your career and one day you're not there um, and you haven't received any benefit. The great thing about the way VC funds work, and, and, and again, I would stress that not all VC funds return. Uh, you make money for their investors. Is that um, is that you have you have the funds and you know you can, people who've worked. Uh, at the firm, um, will have carry, i.e. a percentage of, of that portfolio, whatever happens, even if they leave. And I think the beauty of the creative capital studio model is it's a real blend of the VC model and the, the creative studio model. And it, going back to not really not really finding a, a comfortable home for creatives in the world of pure venture, um, where I think creatives are more seen as an accessory to venture, um, I think building a place that's it, it's it's it, which has creative DNA, but a real focus on you know at the same time on the world of venture. I think makes it ours. And I think mm-hmm. then taking some of the conventions from the VC model and how they how they design their companies and bringing that into this model is also fascinating. In terms of everyone's incentives are aligned. So in an agency, if they did startup work, it's most likely that the equity. Um, generated from that work would go to the agency and the agency is probably owned by anywhere between two to six people. But the hundreds of people who work at the agency, even those who worked on that specific project to bring in the equity, um, don't get any benefit. I think the creative capital studio model where everyone who is a part of the studio will have some piece of carry in the portfolio is again an internal alignment of incentives. And the only reason people stay or leave, um, they, they don't have any other pressures other than this feels right. They're not waiting for a reward or they're not going to lose out on a reward if they leave after one fund or two funds. And I think most conventional models is a heavy punishment for spending six years of your career somewhere, either being turfed out or, or, or leaving. You don't, you don't have the ongoing benefit from it. And also the agency really isn't built as something that has an outcome, you know, uh, set short of its selling. And if it does sell, then a very few amount of, you know, there's a concentration of wealth in the owners who sell. I think the creative capital model, its value is in the um, the net asset value of, it, of its portfolio, the the companies it owns in its portfolio or owns pieces of. And that's something you can easily distribute. And it's also something 
like a VC portfolio that will mature in five, you know, eight, 10 years and create a liquidity event, you know, a capital event where money comes in. So I think it's fascinating to begin to, you know, for us to, to, you know, blend, blend models and build things that realign centers, not only between the entity, the, the startups, creators capital studio and the, um, and the client or the partner, but also internally. Um, does that make sense? It does. It definitely does. And it sounds super, super interesting. So naturally, I would be curious to hear more about your last venture, <laughs> uh, yeah. the factory. But before we go there, do you want to... Uh, I, I interrupted you before you started talking about the five phases of yeah. the creative capital. Do you want to go into that? Uh, yeah, I ha- happily do that. I, I, I think one thing I missed before, which, which you asked, what's the difference between a creative capital studio model and the startup? or venture studios and a VC fund. Shall I cover that briefly? Sure. Yeah, 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 of course. I think that if, and I studied the startup studio model, you know, in detail and actually in, in state of the Digination 2020, there's a, there's a deep dive on the startup studio model and the pros and cons. I, again, I, I know I have a privilege of a lot of access. I can go and speak to the owners and operators of these studios and, and their people. And that's shared on there. I came away feeling that it's not a model I wanted to pursue, pursue, which initially I did. What you're looking in a startup studio or venture studio is a company that's launching other companies and you can probably place two or three bets a year. And one of those you'll kind of turn into a company. You'll have a higher, um, of course, a naturally higher ownership stake in those companies, maybe 60, 70, 80% initially when you launch that company yourself, but it's also high risk. Um, and there's a lot of cost involved. Um, so that's, that's one model. Uh, and you know, one of, one of, you know, companies I've always admired is called Betaworks. I'm actually in the Betaworks studios now. Um, and they were proponents of the startup studio. Well, they were responsible for Giphy and Dots and a number of other interesting startups, uh, and Gimlet Media they invested in, which recently sold. But so for me, again, most of those studio models are startup studios. When I go talk about DNA, the founders are more operators. It's more finance and business school people or some engineering background. I haven't, and I think creators are engineers as well, I should say. But, but again, finding a place that, that, that was more about more aligned with us as creatives and the model was important to me. So the difference between that model and a startup studio, a creative capital studio is we are actually going out, depending on what your thesis is, um, with factory, our thesis is um, early stage. It's not zero to one, but definitely one to end. So it's second, leaning towards second time entrepreneurs and a focus on uh, consumer tech, um, and also working with founders who want to leverage fantastic, you know, product, brand, org design uh, as a way of differentiating themselves in the market. Um, so what's different there is we're going to take, you know, let's say on average five percent of a startup um, and work with thirty startups over a two-year period. And if you look at a startup studio, they're going to have, so we'll have a portfolio of, uh, you know, pieces of 30 startups, smallish pieces. Um, Whereas if you look at a startup studio, they're going to have maybe three or four companies over a two-year period of which they have a high ownership stake in. Um, Now, when you get into um, how, you know, the details of how VC portfolios are structured and, and how power law applies, I think it's more compelling to have that distribution. And also I think it's more in tune with, I would say a lot of us, you know, a lot of us in the creative field uh, have a lower attention span. So us working in an intense period with us, with more companies is probably more attuned to how we like to work. So that's one thing. If you talk, and you talk about VC firms, they're, they're literally, they're borrowing money and they're kind of selling money. Um, and that's very different. You know, on paper, a creative capital studio will look 
very much like a, like an early stage fund because it's basically amassing equity and in lots of lots of startups, um, small amounts of equity in lots of startups. So on paper it's the same, but the method of execution is different. I think there are lots of other benefits to it as an asset class, but that that gets a bit geeky. Mm. So there are important differentiations, and I think like, really the creative capital studio model is really about something for us, for creatives, mm. rather. Than- yeah, for creators, rather than being accessory. Now, with that comes a great responsibility to massively increase our com- sense of commercial literacy, which I know is the focus of your work. And it, it, it's it's a passion of mine at a macro level. And, and you know, if you look at people like John Mader and Scott Belsky, um, I think that's hugely important. They work at this overarching strategic level. Your work and Rob Goh's work as well is about how we connect that to the individual level. I, I, I've, you know, that's one of the reasons I was drawn to your work is because it's one of the most important things I think we can do um, for our industry and for our tribe, so to speak. Yeah, so curious on this topic, like what are the things you see in terms of the commercial literacy that design- designers are uh, falling short the most? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've, I've, thought, I've thought about this a lot. I think, I think the fine art world gave us this awful hangover that, there, there was this sense, and even remember early on in my career in the creative field, that anything commercial was somehow sullied by, you know, any work is kind of sullied by its commercial intent. And, you know, you know, um, and I think that's really set the creative industry on, uh, in the back, back foot because we've kind of rejected commercialism because um, it wasn't cool. Um, and I think that led us to this kind of financially literate mind state mindset we're in. Um, we, we did, we kind of didn't want to learn about money, how capital works or how business works. And we just want, you know, we, we kind of rejected it. Um, and I think that definitely came from the fine art world and it's a hell of a hangover to leave us because it's this notion of rich dad, poor dad. We've, we've developed a mentality where, um, where we were, you know, we're, we're poorer for it, for that mentality. And, and I think, um, one other thing I've reflected on about creators is, you know, empathy is key to our work. We can only really be good creators if we are empathetic, but we tend to apply that empathy universally when I think we should keep it contextual because when it comes to getting paid properly, getting paid on time, demanding our worth, our empathy gets in the way. We're too considerate of others. Um, so I think there's definitely a mindset, mindset shift that really needs to take place because generationally, we've been, you know, we've been rendered financially, uh, commercially illiterate. And that is really dangerous space for us to be in right now, because if you look at the way the, you know, it's, 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 it's played out as a theme, but automation will decimate multiple industries. It will also affect the creative industry. Um, but in, in that process of automation, human creativity becomes our greatest resource, our most valuable resource. And, um, we as in the creative field have the opportunity to gain the most, you know, we're certainly not long distance truck drivers, you know, we're we're at the other end of the scale. However, unless we engage in this mindset shift, unless we begin to redefine the terms of business and take control of, um, uh, uh, of it, then we will also lose in this new economy. Um, you know, for me, if I look, if I look at macro, if I zoom out at the creative industry, there's a really interesting pattern playing out that's self-evident. Um, it's that, you know, a lot of creative industries, um, we as creators have ceded control to our finance overlords. I'd say, if you look at the advertising (laughs) industry, uh, look at the advertising industry and, um, you know, the big, you know, the big ad holding groups, um, 
Um, and if you look at the big five consultancies, if you look at, you know, if you look at the gaming industry, if you look at um, Hollywood as well, anywhere where um, we have ceded control to the CTO, uh, CFO, I mean, um, creativity ends up being viewed as a resource for reductive value extraction. What that means is, you know, we are basically resourced to be mined and exploited. Um, um, and what happens there is you begin to have this systemic collapse. You know, we, we were seeing this in advertising, they're competing on price. Um, and really we need to get back to being the product, not the resource. And, um, and that, that's going to take a hell of a shift. It's going to take us reclaiming, uh, ownership, uh, of, of, uh, of the terms of business. And we've ceded control for too long. And if you look at, you know, there's so many examples, the Hollywood Writers Association now having a battle with the, um, with with the um, New York talent, uh, sorry, with the LA talent agencies, because three of the four main talent agencies got purchased by private equity firms, and private equity firms, which I guess the ultimate form of vampiric capital, are looking to optimize and reduce costs. And suddenly, you know, the creators at the other end of this are on, under pressure. I think this pattern's playing out again and again. You're seeing the collapse of the advertising industry. So um, we need to wrestle back control, the control we've ceded. Uh, and I would say I'm going to have to put my hand up. There's a generation of, you know, creative leaders uh, of, of venerable institutions who've done very well uh, uh, from selling their agency. And they sold their agencies into, into, you know, large groups. And those large groups are run by CFOs who are kind of more focused on the next quarter of performance to affect their share price. And that is that makes us a resource. And, and I think that's the fundamental shift we have to go, to go through. It, it's very clear that that pattern's kind of playing out. Yeah. So Ooh, sorry, no. <laughs> that's perfect. Um, I think one of the key words in there was the mindset shift. You know, yeah. um, a lot of people are maybe afraid of getting into the business, learning more about that stuff. But it's basically using the same muscle that we use towards users or customers or tech, you know, to have this empathy for consumers. We could just shift that towards having empathy for business. You know, because it's not yes. really that complicated. If we get that empathy and try to understand, okay, why are we selling the way we're selling? What does the business need to survive? What do we need as an agency to survive, uh, etc.? We could just learn quickly these things and not cede the control to finance people, which is kind of the crucial thing. Yeah, we should have empathy for ourselves. That's the insanity of it. We're, we're so, we're so, you know, we, we build empathy into all our work, but we don't apply it to ourselves. And, and that really, yeah, you're completely right. So how would you say we can do better in the future? Um, so for me, it's the mindset shift. I, I think, and that's something I'm really passionate about is, is one, keep our um, empathy contextually, keep it, keep it contextual. And it sounds awful, you know, checking your empathy, but um, that that's pretty much the one thing we need to apply that to ourselves. Um, we also need to begin to redefine the terms of business to, to create that on our terms. And that's some, some of the work around the creator capital model and wanting us to lock arms in industry is, is that effort. Um, and yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, we can talk all day long about how we got there. I didn't really go into that. I, th I think we bear responsibility. People who've been leaders in the industry who've done very well, kind of shut the doors behind us because, you know, the industry I grew up in, uh, which was one of plenty, which is one of, you know, 20, 30% margins, which is one where you could hire people because they were interesting ways you could work on dumb experimental stuff because it was interesting. That's all gone. You know, the, the margins have shrunk. You're not, you know, there's a lot less experimentation and the, 
what really concerns me at a systemic level is, is the next generation of creativity is being stifled by this environment we've we've kind of we've allowed to happen as as leaders um and that's going to damage us you know there's less room for experimentation there's less room for those kind of crazy hires um and that's not that's not good um so number one i think we really need to take responsibility for that situation we were complicit in it at a definitely senior level we allowed that to happen so we need to reclaim the value of our work we need to reclaim the the business of creativity and that's about us becoming literate it's about us beginning to um develop models that are attractive to seasoned investors now i like at one end of the scale um like untuck it which is an untucked shirt company yeah i don't know if you've heard of it in, in, in europe but it is prominent in the us on its most recent valuation was 600 million worth well, 600 million dollars um number two um, a wife, a Wi-Fi connected juicer, Juicero, which is kind of infamous, raised 120 million dollars in capital, mm-hmm. um, which squeezed the juice pouch. Now, do you think it's beyond the wit of man and woman to, for us, for all the all the experiences we have, to 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 develop models that seasoned investors will find, put money into? Because I think that's the challenge. We need to be coherent. We need to we need to be compelling, and we need to develop models that attract investment. Um, because there's a lot of capital out there and we're, we're, we're not tapping into it with kind of the current kind of circles. So uh, the current kind of loops we're kind of um, traveling in. So that's really important. So I think we also need to challenge, in terms of empathy, we need to challenge our leaders. We need to, we need to demand better terms. I know this, all of this sounds Marxist, which is quite amusing, but um, talking about the effects of capital, uh, but I think there's a pattern there. I think we just got to get a better diagnosis. And I think the third thing that's really important uh, beyond you know, thinking differently and reclaiming the terms of business is the fact we need to open source. Um, I think we as creatives, certainly if you look at agencies, uh, the agency space definitely play this kind of, it's one against the other. We're all going for that kind of piece of business and we're all competing. That's a really unhealthy mindset. And I think that's another thing that's set us, uh, set us back. I think leaning into the open source philosophies and software development, and certainly the far more collaborative world of venture and startup, we need to share. We need to share what's worked, what doesn't work. Um, and we need to collaborate. And by doing that, we can lock arms and begin to define the, the terms of business. So when we need to create new forums for those discussions, we need to need to create new platforms. Those those will eventually allow us to kind of get back on get back on our feet um, and benefit from the value we deliver. And we have to do it because if we don't, we're also going to be screwed by the automated economy. Because it, you know what, if 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 our masters are reductive value extractors, um, then and they're finance people then we're going to get screwed in that new economy. And this is our chance now in the next few years to begin to develop these models and make them compelling and normalize them to attract investment. And that goes back to you know, the, the phases of creator capital, this being one such model. Does that make sense? It does. And I think this is now a perfect point also to talk a little bit about the factory. Yeah. So can you talk and explain, first of all, what factory is and how far did you get with, with uh, testing this model? Yeah. Okay. So Factory is is my new studio. Um, it's it's the purest form of expression of the creative capital model. So it is a creative capital studio. And the the point of Factory, which in itself is an open source project, the whole blueprint was published in State of the Digital Nation twenty twenty. Um, um, and uh, you can learn anything you want. You know, I publish on Medium and, and, and other platforms to share everything we learn in real time. It's 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 the purest form of creative capital studio model, uh, the creative capital model. And it's basically saying that 
we will bring together um, subject matter experts, literally industry leaders, and we will um, work on a, uh, on a creative capital basis. We will exchange the expertise in return for equity. Um, now, the purest form of the model is that model in itself is funded. We're at the bootstrap phase now. We're doing work in return for equity and cash, uh, whilst we're also going for funding at the same time. Um, so it, that factory in itself, you know, I think the creative capital model where you're exchanging a group of experts' uh, expertise in re return for equity or some of the upside, you can have whatever thesis you want. Uh, I kind of talked about a thesis earlier, like, you know, like a VC firm has an investment thesis, because if you think about it, you're becoming an investor in these startups, you're not selling them uh, time. Um, you have to have a thesis. And and I spoke a bit about it before, but it's, it's you know, one to N, it's not zero to one. We don't want to work with people with an idea. Um, we want to book people who have, you know, the businesses already underway or the startups underway. They receive some funding of some form of product. It's leaning towards second time founders. Um, and it's in the consumer tech space because that's the that's the field that our people are um, expert in. So you need to have a thesis. So that's factory's thesis. And the stage we're at right now is we have three parts of the stack. One is called create, which is we'll build teams and work with a startup. What we'd say is we will get you to your you know the 1.0 of your product brand or org design, um, and uh, we'll do that in return for equity and cash. Um, the second part um, is recruit. So we we've We've brought together, I'll talk about, a little bit about that uh, in the kind of the factory LP network, our, our, our group of uh, industry experts we've brought together. We've created a platform for recruitment because, you know, as we've all experienced the recruitment industry being a bit broken. Um, the, the point is, I do believe that the people with the best oversight of talent in the industry are, um, are creative industry experts and leaders. They know what stage of development people are at, you know, what they're capable of and when they might be ready for the next role and they're the best networked. So what this is, is a referral based network that allows a startup to tap into our people and we'll, we'll shoot a role out to our people and they'll, they'll have, you know, to, they'll understand the role intimately, but they also understand the people they'll refer intimately. And that's a referral network. So everyone's rewarded in that chain. Now it, it speaks to a little bit of an interesting thing is it, it, it comes back to creators mindsets that um, we're all too willing to make free introductions uh, for people. And I think that's great. If you're helping a friend, that's fantastic. But if, if a recruiter is reaching out to you to ask uh, for potential candidates for a role they're hiring, I think it's complete insanity that we as creatives are just giving that out for free. The fact is the recruiter is probably making it between 20 to 40 to 60% commission on that role. Um, and you're giving away your network and the trust that you've spent a whole career building for free as well. So for me, I, I really encourage anyone who's been ever asked by a recruiter to say, look, I'm happy to help you. What's your commission and what's my, what's my referral fee? Because I think we, again, it comes back to this thought that we're, we're, we're too empathetic. We're helping people too much. So certainly if a, if a startup just receives, you know, significant funding from Peter Thiel, then you know what? I think it's completely okay to say, look, happy to help, but there's, there'll be a commission involved. So factory recruit is that part of that. Uh, mm. it, it, it solves for that. Um, then the third part is, is, um, um, factory coach, which is, you know, I, I, it's a different, it's a longer, deeper topic, but I'm deeply passionate about coaching and personal development. And, and I can see how important coaching is, uh, in, for individuals and for companies to help them be better humans and, and perform better. So that's a whole stack we're building with, with, uh, former chaos pilots, which is a fantastic coaching development school in, in Denmark. And um, so we're also doing that because it also does back to knowing that that creates value because you're actually creating better performance. And in a startup, especially, you know, well, anywhere, all business problems are human problems. And it does back to that. 
So those are the three parts of the stack. Um, we're um, finalizing deals with two startups currently. We've begun the recruitment uh, referral process and we're fi finalizing a contract for coaching as well uh, with a prominent Valley startup. Um, now, the, I, I've really labored the hybrid model because a VC firm has what's called LPs. So you have the GPs who are the people who give out the money and their LPs, limited partners, are the one who give them the money to give out. Now, laboring the metaphor a factory also has creative LPs. So we've reached out to our network um, and asked people to be willing to offer their creative expertise, not their money, which is what normally happens in a VC firm. And from that creative expertise, we can build a completely unparalleled team or hive mind to, to suit a startup's needs. So I can't talk in detail about who those people are. We'll be announcing it, uh, I think, late April. But we've got some of the best uh, creatives in, in the tech and startup and agency and brand space. Um, together around creating this hive mind to begin to help startups um, in the, in, initially to um, help them tap into talent and, and expertise they can never hire and definitely wouldn't hire in combination. So that's factory. And first stage is, is, is this kind of bootstrap mode where we're doing equity and cash deals and all at the same time raising money to um, have it fully funded. So the, your costs will be fund, fully funded for your two-year cycles. That's, that's, that's factory. So it's, it's the purest form of question in the model. I, I think it, this is a model that I'm confident will be commonplace in a number of years. And I could park it back in where I see the phases of creative capital um, kind of playing out. Yeah, go ahead. Please. Yeah. Okay. So, so the, the notion of creative capital, like where we as a creative industry are, I think, you know, the last two decades I see as this phase one of fragmentation. There are lots of operators, lots of people doing it. Um, only the privileged few can participate, the Fuse projects, the US2s, the IDOs, the Frogs. There are very few public data points on what's worked and what hasn't worked. And it's definitely happening in the shadows. Um, I think phase two, which is where we're currently at, which is this, what I call harmonization, is we're beginning to talk about the work. There's more media coverage. Um, the, 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 the terms are being normalized, equity and cash, the amount of equity taken. Uh, a lot more alignment is taking place. And creative capital in itself uh, being the name for it is also a thing. So, you know, we're beginning to come together. And that's really interesting because um, that's how we're going to progress. That's how we're going to normalize this as much as a VC model is normalized for the, for the VC industry. Um, and currently, though, the risk and reward sits entirely with the operators. Going back to the privilege through, few, you need to have spare cash to go and do this, to go and build uh, an iOS app for a new startup for a return for 5 or 10%. You need, you need to have a comfortable cash cushion to do that. Um, so it still sits with the privileged few. Um, now, I see in the next two to five years, phase three, which is normalization, where we begin to demonstrate the creator capital in itself is an asset class. Uh, lots of things attached to it. I think we're going to learn it's more capital efficient, i.e. operationalizing um, a check, half a million dollar check to go and work with startups will capture more equity um, by working with those startups, trading your expertise, uh, operational expertise in, in return for equity than it would if you directly invested that check in startups. It will also improve the outcome of that specific startup because you're they're working with them directly. I also believe it will get you access to deals with startups that a regular check wouldn't because most good deals and most second-time entrepreneurs are oversubscribed. You're not going to get in with a check, but if you can get in with a completely unparalleled set of services that's a value-add, you're going to get into deals that others can't. So I think it will become begin to become normalized. I think 
in the next two to five years will be as commonly understood as the VC model by operators. That's, you know, the studios and investors and in buyers. Um, I think we'll begin then to attract funding from seasoned investors. Um, and that begins to shift the model where we can begin to attract investment into our operational costs to go and do risk-based work, venture, you know, cap, greater capital work. And then the risk and reward begins to be split between our investors and the, um, and, and uh, us as operators. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in that period, I think you're going to get these pure play creative capital studios emerging. Factory is a pure play creative capital studio. I think most people are doing it as a small portion of their business. This model will be normalized. There will be pure play creative capital studios. Um, the work till now will be largely focused on startups, I think, because startups are very much, um, they're more flexible. And anyone who's worked with a big corporate, you, you had these dreams of doing like a joint venture or a revenue share you know, we've all been that, a lot of us have been that journey where you take it forwards and you're really excited and then it goes to the, you know, floor 58 and the law, the lawyers are like, what the fuck are you talking about? No, you're just going to get paid for your time and it all goes out the window. So the, we need to demonstrate this model works and creates value all around with startups first. And I think as we've seen with corporates versus startups, if we demonstrate it there, it will be picked up by enterprise over time. Moving to phase four, disintermediation. This is the next five to 10 years I see. I think, you know, once the model has proven that you can invest in entities or creative capital studios just as much as you can like, give money to a VC firm, um, we're also going to see a, a marketplace develop for individuals to be able to raise creative capital funding. So what I'm saying there is um, an individual who has a proven track record, I see a scenario where they could raise half a million dollars uh, over, you know, for half a million dollars, a million dollars, so half a million dollars a year in funding to then as an individual go and do purely value-based work and they will distribute the uh, bounty, the cap, you know, 50-50, whatever the pot is of um, the money of the equity they've captured through doing that work. And they've pushed the risk of uh, onto their investors, but they've also demonstrated that they can capture value. And I think the, the you know, what blockchain will enable in terms of distributed trust and marketplaces, which I think will also help fuel that, that you don't actually have to know this person individually, their track record and their trust is actually decentralized and means we can invest in them. So I think, you know, what we're seeing, what you can see there is it being is atomized, like not just as creative capital studios, but also individuals can raise creative capital money to go and do that kind of work. Um, so then I think we'll begin to see enterprise adoption. I spoke a bit about before, if we demonstrate this works with startups, I believe this will start playing out with enterprise as well. Um, and then phase five, uh, which becomes super interesting to me, um, which is in the next 10 to 20 years, there's something fundamentally different about creative capital. I believe um, it's, it will begin to make a shift from a zero-sum economy to a positive-sum economy. What I mean is a, an economy where there are clear winners and losers um, and, and, and extremes of outcome versus a positive-sum economy where the economy is realigned, the value chain is realigned so that everyone in the value chain is incentivized uh, correctly um, towards a successful and healthy outcome, which means there'll be fewer externalities, less damage, less consequence, because we'll be doing that conscientiously because we're all connected to each other. So it begins to get a bit um, a bit cosmic because I, I do believe this be- could begin to transform the way the economy works, which right now, if you look at private equity, is very much a zero-sum game, you know, and and it's a lot of externalities, um, being environmental, human capital, and things like that. So, what what I think we're working on as an industry and holding hands around this, I think, will have genuine significance, and we will create a, a new path for creators and in, in in the economy. And we absolutely have to because we definitely can't just be following this the existing track. 
Does that make sense? I know I went off on one there, but no, no, it definitely makes sense. I have a few. There were a few things that are really interesting. Yeah, let's see. So, one of the things that you mentioned in the normalization was that at this uh, point in time, then this Creative Capital Studio, which is which can, is basically a point in time where it becomes a fully funded model, yes. right? Yeah. So, can we play out like just a business case? Let's say. If you find a successful product yep. and in seven years it IPOs or yep. whatever, right? It, there is a liquidation uh, event. Yep. How does this then go back to the payout of the team members and the investors? Well, it, that, that's, that's the beauty of, of blending the VC model with the um, creative studio model. Because let's say you worked on a mattress company um uh, let's say let's say factory worked on a uh on-demand banana company and uh, you and i collaborated on that and let's say we took five percent from the on-demand banana company um and um, you were given 50 basis points as part of your work um which is you know 0.5 percent and you would own that even if you left if you worked on us for that specific project or if you worked at factory as a general partner you know fully full-time you would own that little piece of that banana uh, onto my banana startup, even if you left factory. So in six or seven years, when when it when it IPOs on the Nasdaq, um, then that's when you get your additional reward. Now you will have during your time at factory received a salary, um, which uh, a competitive salary, but you also have this little piece of of uh, of this startup. So that's the way it would work because it's 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 done in funds and it doesn't work with agencies if you think about it. And that's why I really focus on this model with the creative studio model. So if we collaborated by working uh, on this on-demand banana company and you received, you know, 50 basis points or 0.5%, you, you will in effect own that even if you leave one day and, you, and actually you should leave. I, I think, I think building companies where um, you're expected to stay for, you know, number of years, I think is unhealthy. And especially, especially building incentives that, that, that actually end up being negative. So I think you should have, an, the only incentive people should have to stay is because they want to, and I think this is an elegant model that allows you to own 0.5% of an on-demand banana company that will IPO in seven years. So yeah. it, it, it's elegant as the solution, I think. Got it. So basically, I get this 0.5% and then the rest of the team and the investor gets the other 4.5% of that. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's distributed between the team, your investors, and then, you know, factory in itself, you know, precisely how you'd divide the, you know, portfolios is, is a deeper topic. Um, um, in regards to how yeah, you fund the studio, yeah. because if it, the, 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 in theory, if, if you're going to raise money to start the company, then your initial investors would have a slice of every fund you'd build over time, rather, or you could actually get the individual fund those two years of operation funded. So there's there's a different there's a couple of different models, and I t- I do take that apart in um in um in my writing as well because it, it's all open source. I'll be publishing in the coming month, a kind of breakdown of everything we've learned and the different routes you could go into how you'd form your studio, you know, building your thesis, uh, funding models and things like that. Again, that's, that's a sense of responsibility. I have that the privilege of access I have, I've spoken with so many people that, that, you know, at, at every end of, uh, of the industry and all the stakeholders and, and I've captured all that information, all the research and I'll be sharing that as well. Cause it's, you know, there, there's lots of variations in how you might want to set your studio up. Yeah, perfect. I'm really looking forward to that. So then let's dive into the second point that was really interesting, which is how does this all 
become interesting also for individuals like freelancers. So this was phase four, right? Yeah. This intermediation. Yeah. So can we go a little bit more into detail? Can you give an example? What would happen? Like, how would I raise money and why would I raise money? And then what would happen over, let's say I raise money for one year. Yeah. Uh, what happens in that year? And after that? Yeah, I, I think there's there's an, there's an interim. So we started off saying we'll normalize this, that people will invest in creative capital studios. They'll consider that a sound investment because it will deliver you know, returns and get interesting deal flow. Yeah. So that, that's step one. I think another step alongside that, I should say, is that you'll have creative agencies who want to do a blend of consultancy work, um, but also some venture-based work. They'll also be able to raise money to offset the risk for doing the risk-based work. So it's kind of, that will allow them to facilitate the hybrid model. And I think that's of interest to, you know, some of your listeners might who might have creative shops, I do see a scenario where you can just raise money for that specific project and you don't have to worry about the impact on your short-term P&L and paying rent in three months. Now, the, the individual model, the, dis- the phase of disintermediation, uh, which I see is five to 10 years out, um, I see a marketplace and, uh, where an individual who's had a successful career and a proven track record can raise money to go uh, and do purely value-based work, purely creator capital work, i.e. I will go and capture value and do deals either in revenue share, royalties, licensing, equity, equity cash basis, purely focus on that. And I will div- and I will have my personal portfolio as a result of that. And my investors, the people who funded me, will have uh, a percentage ownership of that. Um, I see that working ultimately. Yeah, it can work individually, but I, I think ultimately it can work once you create a marketplace for it. And for me, what's important there is distributed trust or trustless marketplace. And I think that will be technology enabled. Right now, your data points would be, well, well, do I know Alan? Do I know who they've worked with? What value is being created? Those are all data points I can, I believe we, we can surface and actually you know, push, into, push into a kind of trustless network. So actually, it's far easier for you to raise money. Did, did I explain? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, having a marketplace where I, let's say it's a Kickstarter where I have my video, I explain, hey, over the next year, I'm going to be focusing on creative work. Yeah. And this is the projects I've done so far. So I'm going to need 100K to just focus on that. Yeah. And uh, in over that time, I'm going to work with three or four teams bringing their projects to life. Yeah. And you guys are going to share this. Uh, you're going to be investors in this and get a certain percentage of that work 100 percent. i mean look, it's not really a new concept either if you you know a lot of people i know who are vps of design of you know significant startups they're doing advisory work they're, they're getting one point of equity which vests over two to three years sometimes four in return for you know several calls a month or a quarter to help guide them and they're making introductions and other things so it, again this isn't a new model this is taking place what i think is interesting is we'll begin to see it normalized especially for creatives of certain capabilities mm-hmm. and i see a marketplace emerging where accreditation um you know uh, and even the investment can take place through through this kind of trustless network um so it's really it's it again it all dials back to us as a community demonstrating that you know our creative expertise properly applied generates business value and it goes back to the mindset we need to foster with everyone to to, to kind of lock arms around that. Super, super interesting again. 
Uh, I also want to be mindful over time, Jules. Mm. So uh, I'll ask you the final question, which um, is sometimes successful, sometimes not in terms of yeah. <laughs> guests having an answer, which is, is there anything about design or creative uh, industry in your case that you've changed your mind about in the last year? Okay. Is there anything I've changed my mind about in the last year? I, I think what's changed in the last two years is that I just don't have time for discussions on the difference between UI and UX or hamburger menus or designing for empathy. I really see the challenge we have is greater. There's a far greater context. And, and I, I, I don't want to get lost in, in what I see as less relevant details because I, the task at hand is significant. Um, so for me, it's really the last couple of years has been about a complete change in focus. And then really what I've come to realize, and there's a lot mixed up with that, my own journey of moving to America and, and is really what's your responsibility in that, within that change? Uh, and, and what's your responsibility as someone who's had the privilege, a privileged journey, you're kind of 1% of 1% in the kind of creative industry. What's your responsibility to help affect change and, and help, you know, help, help your tribe progress, so to speak. So a big shift for me has been that my, my clear sense of responsibility uh, around it and just, just, and just the types of conversation I want to have are not this kind of, uh, you know, it's not about design thinking and those things like that. It's about really the systemic change we need to drive. Mm. So the business of design, basically. The business of design, yeah. Got it. Okay. Cool. Awesome, Jules. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Final, final question. Where can listeners find more about you, read your set of these digital nation reports and where will you also publish the next thing that you write so um you can follow the factory twitter feed or my twitter feed my twitter feed is ezy well ezyjules or ezyjules uh, and uh, factories on medium um also if you type in state of the digital nation into um google you'll get you'll get the articles coming up and i'm always happy to interact with people on um uh, on social as well. So also in terms of releasing, you know, all the research that, that we've done, that will be out on, on medium as well. Um, attached to kind of the factory medium, um, publication. Um, cause again, it's, it's a big open source project. So want to share everything we can as, as, um, in real time. Awesome. I'll definitely include all the links and also share the report. Please. One, once it's out. So, um, yeah, thanks again for your time, Jules. Awesome. Thanks so much. So that's it in this episode. If you have any questions, comments, or anything at all, please reach out on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn. So on Twitter at Alen Falic, that's A-L-E-N-F-A-L-J-I-C. Or just simply also on LinkedIn. Um, or basically you can find all my links on beyondusers.com slash about. And uh, of course also reach out to Jules if you have any questions about his model and uh, basically about the creative capital in general so you can reach him uh, also on twitter and the link to his uh, profile you can find also on beyondusers.com and just go under the podcast and then in the podcast um, kind of blog post you can find the link to his profile Um, so that's all in terms of the episode the last ask I have is if you enjoyed this episode, consider just leaving a review or a rating on iTunes or any other podcast app because this helps me in the future to find great guests uh, like Jules was 
and just in general helps me get great guests. And again, if you do want to learn more about business, you can visit the beyondusers.com and take a five-day email course. And uh, in these emails, you can basically learn about five uh, business concepts that are relevant for designers. Thanks for your attention and see you next time.